Well, at Trinity, where I'm a faculty member, I, I recently taught a course on the Gospel of Mark. So I've been thinking again about the Gospel of Mark, and in particular, I've been thinking about those final scenes in Mark. And especially, I've been struck all over again, as I'm struck every time I read it, by what's been called Jesus' cry of dereliction from the cross, his last words from the cross as Mark records them for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For so many modern Christians, these words are really at the heart of any sort of post-Holocaust view of Christian faith that's worth its salt. If we, if we don't have a God who shares in our agony and our misery, then we don't have a God that we can believe in. This is the verse, this cry of dereliction that, that Jürgen Moltmann put at the very heart of his, of his famous book, The Crucified God, and it's the verse that prompted Dietrich Bonhoeffer to write from prison, only the suffering God can help. And as I told my students in my class, many modern Christians, myself included, are drawn to the way that Mark doesn't prettify, he doesn't whitewash the horror of the crucifixion. He lets us see the full depths of it, the full depths of Jesus' agony, and he shows us Jesus right in the middle of our human suffering. But it's interesting, of course, that not all the four Gospels in the New Testament follow Mark in this way. Luke chooses not to make the cry of dereliction the final words of Jesus from the cross. Luke says, instead, then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus seems to die in trust and in confidence that God has not forsaken him. He entrusts his spirit to God, and he, he calls God his father. And increasingly, I said this to my students, it seems to me that we modern Christians need to hold on to Mark's gospel, and we need to also anchor ourselves to Luke's gospel and not choose between them, not privilege one of them over the other. I've been reading some of the Dominican theologian Thomas Joseph White, and he has argued that what we see in Jesus as he hangs there on the cross is hope. We see his hope in his own vindication, his own resurrection, and we see his hope in our salvation. The thing about hope, White says, is that it's a virtue that flourishes in an incomplete state in which both loving desire and painful deprivation can be simultaneously present. Christ on the cross expects salvation from God in the form of resurrection, but he doesn't yet see that resurrection. Hope, as, as Thomas Joseph White goes on to say, is a complex virtue, precisely because within hope, expectation and desire can and do coexist with the non-possession of that which is hoped for. And this means, he goes on to write, that in hope, the states of desire, sadness, deprivation, and agony can and often do coexist. 
So the fact that Christ can cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he can also say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, is a window into the true complexity of hope. Or as as Will read for us just a moment ago, as Paul says in Romans, in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And I think this is what Christ, as our, as our forerunner, as the firstborn, shows us as he cries from the cross. He entrusts himself to his Father in hope. But he doesn't yet see the vindication that he knows is coming, and so he, he cries out in agony. The agony and the hope are mingled together. Well, this, this place of tension, this, this place of, of confident trust and painful deprivation is where we believers live our lives, I think. Paul says that we are those who wait in patience, but this patience, as he goes on to say, is very complex. He says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We have, we have it, present tense, we have the indwelling Spirit. We have the confidence that our bodies will be raised from the dead. But until we actually reach that day of resurrection, we groan, we, we yearn, we wait in agony often. We often experience the, the hungering for a feast that we haven't yet consumed. And we cry out like Christ, trusting our Father, but also groaning in pain and in fear. And we're like that phrase that St. Paul uses in 2 Corinthians to describe his life as an apostle. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I found in my life as a Christian who has experienced nearly exclusive same-sex desire since my teenage years, that this way of thinking about hope has been a lodestar, it's been an anchor for me. My story is a story that doesn't fit neatly into the way some Christians think about homosexuality or or what it means to be gay. I grew up going to church and trusting in Jesus, I think, from before I knew how to talk. I was raised in a pretty sheltered southern town, and it was only after I moved away to go to college that I realized I had known another gay person. He was closeted at the time that I knew him. No one really talked about gay people in the town where I grew up, unless it was conservative Christians in my church who were worried about Disney World having an annual uh, gay day. I didn't sleep around in high school. I didn't go to gay bars. I didn't march in any parades or take part in any activism. And I couldn't pinpoint any obvious cause or or reason why I was same-sex attracted certainly was not a conscious choice on my part. And my relationships with my parents, as far as I could discern, my relationships with my peers were about as ordinary as theirs were with their parents or with one another. I seemed about as ordinary or about as nerdy, whichever you prefer, as any of my other friends. For a while, I went to see several Christian counselors to talk about whether I could do anything to make these same-sex attractions diminish or go away. I wondered if it were possible for me to get married to a woman. 
I certainly didn't imagine myself coming out and standing here saying things like this uh, this morning. But as I've grown older, I would say that if anything, my being gay has become a, a clearer and a stronger reality in my life. I certainly have not experienced any of the, the categorical change that, that sometimes Christians promise in this arena. And as I've made more gay friends and, and begun to see the way that, that being gay has been a, a gift in my life, it's, it's actually made me more sensitive to those who are on the margins of the church. It's made me seek out friendships I wouldn't have otherwise, and it's made me desperate for God. It's made me more prayerful. I feel pretty confident that if I weren't same-sex attracted, I would not have invested so much in my friendships, and I wouldn't be nearly as attuned, I think, to how much brokenness and how much prejudice and how much loneliness there can be in our world. And yet, on the other hand, I'm more and more convinced, the more I study scripture, the more I live with church history, that same-sex marriage and same-sex sexual expression are not God's will for those who are like me, for those who are gay. In the story that I believe scripture tells, sex is intended for something specific. The book of Genesis pictures sexual intimacy as as bound up with the exclusive bond of a man who leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife and lives into the blessing of being one flesh and the blessing of welcoming children. Sex, in other words, is it's ordered in a particular way. It's ordered by a designer. It's meant to bind husband and wife together in love and to turn them both outside of themselves, to give of themselves to one another and to, to welcome children into their lives when God wills. And I think the New Testament makes clear that this, this bond of husband and wife is a sign and a witness to Christ's love for the church. The relationship between a husband and wife as Hans Urs von Balthasar has put it, following Ephesians and Revelation and many other texts, he says it's related over and above itself to an eternal, holy, and spotless standing before God in the love of the incarnate Christ for his bride, which is the church. And for that reason, I think, when Paul discusses same-sex sexual activity, he views it as a kind of breakdown of the creator's design. If true sexual coupling, the kind that the designer of the, of the world, the designer of sex intended, is found in marriage, then any sexual expression outside of that bond, including same-sex sexual expression, is a, is a kind of missing the mark. It's a falling short, as Paul says in Romans 3 of God's design. If man and woman coming together in marriage are meant to depict Christ's love for his bride, the church, then same-sex coupling, I think, pictures a kind of turn towards sameness. This is why I think Paul in Romans 1 connects same-sex sexual behavior to the overall idolatry that all of us have fallen into. Instead of turning to the transcendent creator, we turn to images of idols that look exactly like us. Instead of turning to the, to the capital O, other, we turn toward the same. As Simon Gathercole has said, following Paul, humanity should be oriented toward God, but we turn in on ourselves. Woman should be oriented toward man, but turns in on itself. Man should be oriented toward woman, but turns in on itself. 
So reading scripture this way, I've felt compelled to try to live my life as a sexually abstinent gay man. I'm still very much a same-sex attracted person, but the usual script that I hear from the culture that I ought to look for a husband and, and try to give myself sexually to another member of the same sex is not a script that I feel in good conscience I can perform. So I'm, I'm in a kind of middle ground. I'm, I'm very much still same-sex attracted, but I'm also celibate and seeking to follow Christ. And this is a, a complex place to try to inhabit. Certainly, there's often a lot of joy involved. As I've learned more about what it means to, to practice sexual abstinence, more about what it means to be celibate, I've learned that it is definitely not, celibacy is not about saying no to love. Christians have never understood celibacy as only about refraining from sexual intimacy. They've always underscored that celibacy is about giving yourself to the community that you belong to. I remember reading in the New York Times of all places, James Martin, the Catholic priest, writing this, those who opt for celibacy choose it as a manner of loving many people deeply in a way that they would be unable to if they were in a single relationship. And I think in my own life, I really do experience this. I have a number of devoted friends, one of whom is here with me today, whose, whose daughter is my goddaughter, whom I feel really intimately connected to. And I'm able to express love for these friends, and I'm able to receive love from these friends. And I can honestly say that, that being single does not automatically mean being isolated, being alienated. But there is also pain. I can't deny that sometimes I look longingly at my married friends, at the way they never have to think about who to go on vacation with, they never have to think about who to write down as their emergency contact, they never have to think about who they need to tell that funny thing that happened at the grocery store that day. Um, and I have to confess, loneliness is a, is a pretty regular, pretty intense experience for me, and it has been since my college years. I remember when I was younger, I, I stumbled across a letter from, from the poet W.H. Auden, who was gay and, and, and a devoted Anglo-Catholic, and he, he wrote this to his friend Ursula Niebuhr. He said, there are days when the knowledge that there will never be a place which I can call home, that there will never be a person with whom I shall be one flesh, seems more than I can bear. And I often resonate with those lines very much. I often feel that no matter how close I get to my devoted friends, I'm not first in their life, and they're not first in my life in a way that spouses can be for one another. But the more I dwell on those scriptural texts that, that Will read for us and that I opened this sermon with, texts in which Jesus both screams out in agony and trusts his Father in peace, those texts in which St. Paul says that we're profoundly indwelt by the Spirit, we have God's very presence in us, and yet we also groan and yearn for the redemption of our bodies, the more I realize that this complex, of, complex experience of joy and grief, mingled sorrow and frustration and devotion and love, is the furthest thing from abnormal for Christians. We are all of us people who live in what theologians call the eschatological tension. It's as though we're strung like a, like a taut wire in between two poles, we live in the in-between. We live knowing that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and we are baptized into his body. 
And we live knowing that Christ has not yet come back again, that we haven't yet been bodily raised from the dead, and that we don't yet see Christ face to face. We live in hope, in other words. And hope, as, as Thomas Joseph White reminds us, is a complex thing. Hope is this incomplete state in which both loving desire and painful deprivation can be simultaneously present. The Catholic theologian Joseph Pieper, who, who was building on the work of Thomas Aquinas, he's described our practice of this virtue of hope as a life of wayfaring. I love that. We are wayfarers. We are those who are on the way, pilgrims to the city of God. Listen to Pieper. He says, the concept of the status viatori is one of the basic concepts of every Christian rule of life. To be a, a viator, a wayfarer, means one who is on the way. The status viatori is then the condition or state of being on the way. And its proper opposite is the status comprehensori. One who has comprehended, one who is encompassed or arrived is no longer a viator, but a comprehensor. And Pieper says that those of us, all of us who are Christians, who are on the way, we're always poised between presumption and despair. Presumption rejects the state of being a wayfarer because it says we've already arrived. We don't need to be wayfarers anymore. We've already gotten there. On the other hand, despair says we don't need to be a wayfarer because the end has already come and it's bleak and we'll never get there. So that rejects the state of being a wayfarer on the other side. But if we hold on to hope, if we're pilgrim people who live in hope, if we recognize that we have been rescued by Christ and we're waiting for him to come again, then we can recognize that this this strange paradoxical life of mingled joy and sorrow, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, is in fact the normal state of Christian discipleship. Listen to Paul again. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, this is what it means, I think, to be a Christian. Whether you're gay or bisexual or, or straight or whether you're particular challenge this morning is something entirely different from sexuality. To be a Christian means to hope, to embrace your status as a wayfarer, as a pilgrim on the way to the city of God, to wait for your adoption, the redemption of your body, and to, to groan as Christ did on the cross, both, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Would you please pray with me now? Heavenly Lord, you long for the world's salvation. Stir us from apathy, restrain us from excess, and revive in us new hope that all creation will one day be healed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.